widescreen podcast show number one for 302. I am the Big Bad Burger Meister Meister Burger. Thank you for everyone who is here. I greatly appreciate you. Appreciate me talk goodly. I greatly appreciate you, you tuning in and uh, listening to this nonsense. Uh, longtime listeners, yeah, I know what you're thinking. Oh, John, this podcast is getting later and later in the month, and I understand that. I understand that. Uh, this month has been crazy. It's been absolutely uh, bat crap crazy. I don't know. I can. I, why do I not swear? I just because why? <laughs> you know what phrase I wanted to say, and I almost did say it. I uh, whatever. But anyway, yeah, this month has been crazy. That big ass commission that I've been working on from Warframe since October finally was finished. And I got that mailed out last week. It just arrived today as I record this. And boy, man, I'll tell you, if this is what doing commissions is going to be like, my nerves are going to be shot in no time. Because the thing, the item itself weighed 11 pounds. After all of the bubble wrap and packing material, the whole package actually weighed 20 pounds. And the box was... Uh, well, okay, for those of you who are outside the U.S., I apologize. You're going to have to convert this. But the box was 45 inches long, so it was almost four feet long. It's just like I've never, ever in my life sent a package that big before. And the fact that it was one of my commissions made me super paranoid. But it got there okay. He sent me a picture, and everything is good. He has it up on a, a table, and it's got a stand, and... So yeah, that was a big thing for this week to get that done. And I'm working on another prop that I want to take to PAX East. PAX East is happening next week. Can't wait. Uh, obviously, I will be getting interviews there. And interviews will be done not here, but for TGP Nominal. Uh, well, I would say like always, but we didn't get a chance to do it last year. I'm going to do it this year. We're going to get the interviews done this year, though. If you're wondering what kind of interviews I do at PAX East, it's mostly with the indie devs because it's the indie developers who are the ones who are most willing to talk to people. You know, They're excited about being there because they're trying to compete with the big names like Electronic Arts or EA and Ubisoft and Activision and, and Nintendo and so forth. So a lot of the independent studios, they love talking to people because it's more publicity for them, which is fine but also that they're the ones who need the publicity more than the big AAA title companies do. And I am more than happy to give them that kind of exposure. So that's the kind of stuff that I do at PAX East. And right now I'm trying to get this latest prop finished so I can bring it up as a stress test. I've got less than a week now to do that. So yeah, that that's one another reason why this podcast is late. Plus, I had already started to work on the show notes and getting everything together. And then I looked at the calendar, I was like, oh, the Academy Awards are this weekend. <sighs> Fine, I'll wait. So now the Academy Awards are done. We can talk about those a little bit later. Some actually some really cool things that happened at the Academy Awards. And if you're longtime listeners, <laughs> they know that I, I don't care about the Academy Awards. The Academy Awards, from an outside perspective, is nothing but employee recognition. I mean, really, it, it's by the Academy for the Academy, effectively, you know, by, or by the Academy for, for the Hollywood employed. And that's not to diminish the value that it has to the people who receive those awards. I mean, I'm sure that 
like anything else, if you if you worked hard and you got recognition from the people you work with, that's going to feel great. So I understand that from the from the the perspective of the people who get the Oscars, but from for me on the outside, it's just like okay. But you know, whatever. I know the people around the world put the super high value on the Oscars for whatever reason. That's the marketing that they've built up over the past few decades. Right, so be it. I guess I'm I'm more practical when it comes to those sorts of things. But anyway, anyway, anyway. What I think about the Academy Awards doesn't matter. I'm still gonna cover it, and there still were some cool things that happened there. But the stack of stuff here is kind of big, and I'd like to get this podcast done. So let's just get to the notes. Paramount is going to be increasing the price of Paramount uh, Plus, which is now going to be rebranded as Paramount Plus with Showtime. So starting in the third quarter of 2023, costs for the advertising-free plan are going to go from $9.99 to $10. Let's just do that. From $10 per month to $12 per month, and that's going to be with you know, Paramount Plus with Showtime. While the essential plan with advertising is going to go from $5 a month to $6 a month. Not a big deal. If you're the kind who has to have a Starbucks every morning, then don't complain about a $2 monthly fee raise. Just know that that raise is going to be happening sometime later this year. Uh, One of the things when it comes to CES and shows like that, as I always say, is that they advertise new TVs and so forth, and pricing and availability will be listed later. They love doing that. Well, LG has finally announced the pricing and availability for their 2023 OLED TVs, and uh, (laughs) they go all over the place. I mean, they literally have like 30 different models available. I am not going through all of them, but I will go to the uh, least expensive, which is their 42-inch, and it's going to be, well, it's currently available uh, for this month. It's in March, and its cheapest is $13.99. Again, that's for their 42-inch OLED. But if you are the kind that have more money than cents, they are still, or they're not not still, they are now offering their 65-inch rollable OLED screen. You know, that's the one that can pop up and uh, go back down into this nice little console. For a cool $100,000. Now, the prices obviously go everywhere in between that $1,400 to $100,000. Uh, so I will simply have a link to where you can look at all of this. If you're in the market for a new OLED TV, or OLED, however you wish to pronounce it, both are correct. And I, as always, will hold on to my 3D Bravia 1080p until it completely dies. If you're looking for a new streaming device, you know, such as Chromecast or all of any of those kinds of things, Walmart apparently is working on a new Chromecast competitor. So a new FCC ID approval request, which is obviously anything electronic has to get an ID approval from the Federal Communications Commission. So that's what this was found. That's what this was found? You know what I mean. (laughs) English, it's hard. (laughs) Even for native speakers. Uh, anyway, the documents reveal uh, that it's going to be a, a Wi-Fi device. It's going to have Bluetooth certification, meaning it's probably going to run Google TV instead of Android TV. The chipset that's listed is going to support 4K AV1 decoding, which actually would give it a significant advantage over the Chromecast. But, uh, I mean, there's no word on when it's going to launch, but considering that it's now going through the FCC, it actually should be sooner rather than later. 
And if Walmart's little 4K streaming box is priced correctly, it could actually be a really good alternative to the Chromecast with Google TV. And you know, hey, if Walmart wants to send me one for review, I will make time to do that, and I will even post it on my YouTube channel. If you're looking forward to seeing Avatar The Way of Water and you don't like to go to movie theaters anymore or you're simply waiting for it to, to come to home because of whatever reason, it will be available on all major streaming retailers on March 28th, including Prime Video, Apple TV, Vudu, and Movies Anywhere. And it will also have more than three hours of behind-the-scenes content, most of which is going to explore, obviously, the technology behind the way that Avatar is filmed, with all of the head rig cameras and infrared cameras and so on and so forth. There is no word yet on Disney+, Plus, considering that they own the movie, or any physical release at this point. Uh, it, it's, you can almost be certain it's going to happen. Now, whether or not it's going to come out on 3D Blu-ray, considering how much James Ad James Ameren, James Cameron is an advocate of 3D. That remains to be seen, but you never know. You never know. Uh, speaking of discs re disc releases, obviously DVD and Blu-ray are still being released. That's not a secret, but even though as much as those have been declining or at least barely staying steady over the past several years, Disney is doing what they normally do for discs. It's vault, you know, unvaulting time. They're re-releasing several of their titles uh, from Disney, Pixar, Marvel, and Lucasfilm to celebrate the studio's 100th anniversary. So we're talking a huge number of movies that are going to be released steadily, uh, steadily throughout the year. And there's a lot of movies here. So if you are one for, for getting Steelbook collections, you know, and Steelbook are simply like the clamshell DVD cases, but they're metal. So currently available are Encanto, Beauty and the Beast, Toy Story, Moana, Frozen, The Little Mermaid, and Mickey and Minnie 10 Classic Shorts Volume 1. Those should currently be available. But uh, upcoming releases include The Aristocats, The Jungle Book, Zootopia, Tangled, Frozen 2, Sleeping Beauty, Lady and the Tramp, Wreck-It Ralph, Robin Hood, 101 Dalmatians, then in, actually those should be available now, on May 2nd, uh, all three of the original Star Wars movies, not the theatrical versions, the newly modernized versions, McClunky, <sighs> no doubt, uh, then in June, uh, Coco, Toy Story, again, these are all Steelbook, Cars, and then in uh, June 13th, Finding Nemo, another Coco, oh, that's not a Steelbook, Brave, Cars, Up, The Incredibles, Monsters, Inc., June 27th. I mean, this is what they're doing. They're going nuts. So if you still like physical media and you really want to start collecting these new Disney movies, you're going to have to fork out a lot of money. So June 27th, Mickey and Friends, 10 Classic Shorts, Volume 2. Uh, August, Cinderella in 4K. And that's, that's a steelbook, Beauty and the Beast steelbook, Frozen steelbook, September, Iron Man steelbook, <laughs> October, Little Mermaid steelbook, Lion King steelbook, Moana steelbook, Aladdin steelbook, uh, Lion King, Aladdin, I guess that's non-steelbook, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Fox and the Hound, Cinderella, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and finally, Alice in Wonderland. So, yeah, I mean, if you like Steelbook, you're definitely going to be paying out a lot of money for those. But honestly, the fact that Disney is still putting so much of an effort into releasing all of those on disc, 
to me says that disc really it's nowhere what it was it's never going to be what it was but it's nowhere close to being completely dead either and honestly because we still have so many isps especially here in the u.s that still have bandwidth caps and ultra hd movies take up a lot of bandwidth until bandwidth caps go away and it's universally available whether through something like uh, starlink or whatever i don't see this going away at all you know, plus in some regard i i kind of knew a little bit of a tangent i kind of knew this was going to happen when streaming and like mp3s and so forth took over i was like yeah but you know what people are going to eventually miss being able to hold something in your hands and reading the box and and so forth looking at the art and it I feel a little bit vindicated because it was recently announced that for the first time since 1987, records have sold more than D or than CDs. Again, I'm not naive. They'll never have the popularity that they had before. But still, you know, it's cool to see. I get emails all the time you know, for video games and and so forth, and other other vinyl uh, record companies and so forth talking about oh this new album is being released on vinyl this new album is being released on vinyl this new collection is being released on on vinyl it's nice to see there is something about tangibility that people might have forgotten in the convenience of streaming and uh you know that sort of thing but i think people are starting to get the hang of it again especially the younger crowd who didn't grow up with records or something and now they're kind of like hey you know what this is actually kind of cool so oh well We'll see how that goes. But finally, in disc releases, there are constantly a bunch of disc releases. But of course, this one was brought to my attention from a good friend of mine who is a big-time Superman fan. Warner has made it official. The entire Superman movie collection is coming on Ultra HD Blu-ray on April 18th. And that is, of course, going to include the original masterpiece, Superman the movie, Superman 2. Superman 2, the Richard Donner cut. Superman 3, and, yeah, that that other Superman movie that we don't talk about. So, yeah, <laughs> if you've seen that movie, you understand why. Although, in fairness, I've read up about that one, and Christopher Reeve got royally, royally screwed when it came to Superman 4. I mean, first off, from what I understand, the original script is nothing like what the movie turned out to be. That was a problem. And then... There was an issue with the distributor Canon Films, and the budget was supposed to be something like $36 million and ended up being slashed to 17 Superman 4 had a budget, and a final budget, of $17 million. The original Superman had a budget of $55 million. It's no freaking wonder Superman 4 had awful special effects and, and so many problems, but regardless... Just be warned, the five the five film collection is going to have an MSRP of $100. They will These new remastered versions will be available for streaming, if you so wish. And there's also supposed to be an Amazon-exclusive Steelbook version that includes a number of certificates, a number certificate of authenticity, a collectible comic book, a Phantom Zone lenticular card. I kind of want it just for that. And uh, a 16-page photo book. So if you are a Superman fan and you bask in the glory of that which is known as Ultra HD with 4K TVs, that is probably going to be worth it for you. I, I still want that lenticular card. So box office numbers. Yeah, I actually get to talk box office numbers. How's that for unusual for this podcast as of late? 
So uh, as of this past weekend, Scream 6 has been dominating at 43 million. Creed 3 still going strong. 26 million, 65 at 10 million. Ant-Man and the Wasp, it's, I mean, it's still making money. <laughs> it's not nearly making what they expected it to make. 6 million, Cocaine Bear, which has been going crazy. That That's that's one of those movies that just seemed to come out of nowhere, and it's doing really well. Uh, that made 6 million. The following, or the, the rest of the top 10 are Jesus Revolution, Champions, Avatar, duh. Uh, Demon Slayer, Sword Village, and Puss in Boots, Last Wish. It's still in the top 10. I do want to see, I have not seen it yet, but it is currently in my Netflix DVD queue. Yes, you can still rent DVDs from Netflix, and I still do. So that that's DVD.com if you wish to, to partake in that yourself. Uh, this podcast is not sponsored by DVD.com, but boy, I wouldn't mind if it was. Well, yeah, Puss in Boots now has made $460 million globally, so that's clearly a hit. Creed 3 is also doing spectacularly. It is a franchise record brought in $58 million on its opening weekend, and that's domestically. Uh, globally, it's surpassed $100 million, and that means it is the first sports film in history to surpass $100 million globally. Now, granted, Ticket prices now are different than ticket prices from, say, Rocky. But still, I mean, that, that is that is quite a milestone. And if there were concerns about Amazon pushing more of its movies towards its streaming service instead of theatrical because of its purchase of MGM, well, Creed 3 is an MGM movie. So it's an Amazon movie. And right now, Creed 3 is sitting at $182 million globally off a $75 million budget. So... Don't be surprised to see that Amazon is going to push more and more of its bigger movies into the theater instead of trying to hide it behind its streaming service. But on the flip side, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania has been getting crushed. A lot of people on film Twitter who are in the industry have been saying how much they don't like Quantumania and they won't watch it again, which is that, that's kind of brutal. But one of the big indicators of how a movie is going to do long term is what's called its fall rate or decline rate. I mean, there are a couple different phrases for it, but basically, how much does the box office decline from opening weekend to the second weekend? Because if a movie has really good reviews, really good word of mouth, it generally will have a low drop rate from the opening weekend to the next. That's not the case with Ant-Man 3. It fell almost 70%, which is the worst decline ever for any Marvel Cinematic Universe title, even Black Widows. Now, and keep in mind, though, Black Widows had a little bit of an issue with it because that was like right in the middle of the pandemic. Plus, it was also made available for streaming at home day and date. We've talked about that in the podcast before and the issues that that's caused. So that had a 67.8% drop one weekend to the next. So Ant-Man is now the worst of the Marvel Cinematic movies for opening weekend drop to the second weekend. It also suffered the worst second weekend drop of any superhero film opening to $100 million or more. Even Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice, that was its 69.1% drop. And so now Ant-Man has surpassed that as 69.7. So that's not that's not saying too much for the movie uh, at this point. Doesn't mean it's not going to be successful long term. 
mean, right now it's at four hundred fifty million on a two hundred million dollar budget. Yeah, it's approaching break even. But I mean, at least it's still not the worst of all films that started off with an opening weekend of a hundred million or more. The last Harry Potter movie is the top list of second weekend drops with the decline of seventy two percent. Oh well. I mean I feel bad because I wanted to see Ant Man theatrically. I probably would have been the only one to go. But I just what is free time? I don't freaking have free time anymore. What if I I'm pretty sure though I'm gonna make time to take the family to see the Super Mario movie. Nintendo's big in the house. My my wife and I used to play the Super Mario Brothers games like crazy back in the day. And that's coming out next month, so we'll we'll see. And if that's in 3D, that's even better. So yeah, we might as well get the Academy Awards out of the way. Uh, obviously, the biggest movie this year in awards and and reviews and so forth. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, even before the Academy Awards, it passed Return of the King as the most awarded movie ever. So even before the Academy Awards, it had 158 different awards uh, from critics' organizations and other awards bodies. You know, Golden Globes, SAG Awards, Indie Spirits. So that's 158 different accolades uh, versus the previous holder of that record, which is Lord of the Rings Return of the King, which had 101. So 158 versus 101. But even if you just uh, counted nominations then they still would beat Return of the King with 336 awards, 600... Well, uh, when they say awards, they mean, like, everything. Every single kind of award, even smaller ones. Uh, 336 awards, 691 nominations versus Return of the King's 213 awards and 337 nominations. So, I mean, I'm not going to go through the whole list, but uh, everything, everywhere, all at once won seven awards in total, including Best Picture, also won uh, Best Directing, Best Film Editing, and I got it, this was kind of cool, the uh, the folks at A24 who released everything, everywhere, all at once, uh, the directors on, I think it was the directors, might have been the film editor, released on Twitter the timeline in the the video editor that they used to to actually cut the movie and edit it, they released the full timeline of what they did to put the movie together now someone who's done that before because i used to do that kind of videography work it was really cool to see the timeline for the movie itself and there were a lot of elements to it obviously but when it comes to the layers that they had on the timeline there were only like four or five video layers and about 10 audio layers and if you look at the actual credits for everything, everywhere, all at once, it's it's small compared to a lot of movies, especially uh, ones that win, win big Academy Award movies. It's a small list. The post-production visual effects crew is only like six people. But as someone who's done video editing, it was really cool to see that they posted the timeline on Twitter. So everything, everywhere, all at once won seven uh, Oscars. All, all Quiet on the Western Front won four. The Whale won two. And then there was one each for Avatar, Black Panther, uh, The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and The Horse, The Elephant Whisperers, uh, Del Toro's Pinocchio, An Irish Goodbye, Navalny, RRR, uh, Top Gun Maverick, and Women Talking. 
So, I mean, I will, I will have a list, you know, if you haven't looked them up already, I will have a, a link to the list of everybody who won. But there were two things about the Academy Awards that uh, I didn't watch it. I was busy streaming because I was like, whatever, the Academy Awards. <laughs> I already talked about that. Uh, but there were two things afterward that I was looking at. I was like, um, okay, that's cool. Uh, one is that Michelle Yeoh uh, won the Best Actress uh, Award for Everything Everywhere All at Once. And she is the first Asian woman to win the Academy Award for Best Actress. And again, we're talking someone who identifies as Asian because, well, she is from Malaysia. So past winners Vivian Lee, Cher, and Natalie Portman all say you know they have ties to Western Asian heritage, but none are considered or consider themselves to be of Asian descent. So Michelle Yeoh is the very first Asian woman to win Best Actress at the Oscars. And Ki Hui Kwan, who also played... No, he he won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. He and his parents immigrated over here from Vietnam when he was just a boy. Uh, he said that he spent a year in a refugee camp. He is the second Asian to ever win the Best uh, Supporting Actor Oscar. The first one, and I'm going to butcher this, and I do apologize, uh, Hang S. Ngor, I, I guess, I hope I got that, uh, who won Best Supporting Actor from the killing fields in 1984 and he was from chinese and cambodian descent but i mean really what, what's awesome about kihi kwan's win is that he really disappeared from the spotlight after the 80s so this is his first time back in the spotlight for nearly 40 years and he just completely nails it you know I mean, it, it's a comeback kid story how can you not love that the other part of the academy awards of particular note is that ruth e carter has won her second oscar for costume work, this time on Black Panther Wakanda Forever. She won her first one for the original Black Panther. Now, the first one made her the first ever black woman to take home the statue for costume design, but now this one makes her the first black woman to be a two-time winner in any category and joins only four other black winners to have two uh, competitive Oscars uh, with uh, Denzel Washington, Willie D. Burton, Russell Williams II, and Mahasha Ali. Mahershala Ali. Uh, she also becomes the first person to win a costume design Oscar for designing both the original and its sequel. Now, as for the snubs, a lot of people were kind of surprised by this. Top Gun Maverick won one award, because, and that was for sound design. And then Avatar 2 won a single award, which is obviously for special effects. Uh, Banshees of Insurin, which went up for nine awards, didn't get any. Another one that, I don't know, was a snub, but it was surprising. Most people seem to expect Angela Bassett to win Best Supporting Actress, and that went to Jamie Lee Curtis. There were also a lot of, of speculation that Elvis would have won Best Cinematography, which would have made Mandy Walker the first woman to win a cinematography award. Uh, that went to All Quiet on the Western Front. And then similarly, a lot of people expected All Quiet on the Western Front to win Best Adaptive Screen Adapt tid screenplay but that went to women talking but i mean overall the academy awards this year were uneventful there was no slapping incident but yeah I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing everything everywhere all at once assuming that i can actually get time to watch it but the netflix dvd of it is already in the mail and on the way all right on to other movie news seth rogan now has a cast for the upcoming teenage mutant ninja turtles movie called mutant mayhem the Turtles will be voiced by Micah Abbey, uh, Shaman Brown Jr., Nicholas Cantu, and Brady Noon. 
Jackie Chan will be voicing Splinter. Rogan himself will be uh, voicing Bebop, and John Cena will be uh, will be Rocksteady. <laughs> Some other names in the cast: Ice Cube is going to be Superfly. Uh, Ayo Adabiri is going to be April O'Neil. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito is going to be playing Baxter Stockman. Uh, Paul Rudd will be Mondo Gecko, and Maya Rudolph will be Cynthia Utram. I actually don't know that one. If that's from the from the original 80s cartoons, then i got to go back and watch those, because that character is not familiar to me. Anyway, Mutant Mayhem has a release date of August 4th. Even though there have been plenty of Star Wars-related content on Disney+, Plus, uh, you know, Mandalorian, and, and uh, so on and so forth, hasn't really been anything for movies ever since that god-awful movie called Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> I mean, yes, technically Rise of Skywalker <laughs> was a, a success because it made over a billion dollars globally on a $275 million budget, but... That's half as much as The Force Awakens made. And needless to say, uh, people like me have been decrying that movie for the uh, ridiculous piece of plot hole ridden fan fiction that it is. But when you take that, plus the fact that Solo did not do very well at all, which, that's too bad. Solo was a good movie. There, I said it. I enjoyed it. I walked out of that theater very satisfied with it. I would go to see a Solo sequel. And and let Ron Howard direct it. But obviously, ever since that, that awful last movie, uh, no Star Wars movie has been greenlit, let alone gone into production. So the folks over at Variety have been trying to get a whole bunch of information on this as to what the hell is going on. Uh, as you know, Rogue Squadron, which was going to be Patty Jenkins' movie, has been pulled from the schedule. Apparently, it's no longer even in active development. Uh, a possible Star Wars movie produced by Kevin Feige is also no longer in active development. As for Ryan Johnson, who did The Last Jedi, which, in retrospect, I think is actually the best of the three sequel movies. You know, again, in retrospect. At the time, I didn't quite know what to make of it, but since then, I appreciate what Ryan Johnson was trying to do with that. He has announced that he still wants to make the Star Wars movies that he first announced back in 2017, and Kathleen Kennedy has said that Lucasfilm still wants him too, but right now he's having so much success with the you know Benoit Blanc movies as well as uh, the Peacock series Poker Face, which is doing very well for him. That's going to keep him busy for a while. Uh, this one goes into the rumor mill. Sources say that Taika Waititi continues to work on his potential Star Wars movie, and sources also say that uh, the studio is committed to a Star Wars movie from director, I'm going to butcher this and I apologize, Charmin Obaid Chinoy. Hope I got that right. A two-time Oscar-winning documentarian who made her live-action narrative debut with two episodes of Miss Marvel for Disney+. Plus. But apparently, that's all that we can get regarding potential Star Wars movies. Again, content on Disney+, Plus, different thing. We're talking theatrical releases. Looks like we're still going to have to wait. Now, that's what the rumor mill said, but the official word comes from Disney CEO Bob Iger, and he said that they are being, quote-unquote, very careful with developing new Star Wars feature films, partially because of Solo's you know, weak box office showing. Uh, but I don't doubt that the negative feedback towards that last Star Wars movie was part of it. 
But at the same time, he also says that it's time for the studio to start rethinking how many sequels Marvel characters get. He said uh, there are 7,000 characters in, you know, in the Marvel Universe. There are a lot more stories to tell. What we have to look at at Marvel is not necessarily the volume of Marvel stories we're telling, but how many times we go back to the uh, well on certain characters. Uh, sequels typically work well for us, but do you need a third and a fourth, for instance, or is it time to turn to other characters? I mean, he's not wrong. If you have over 7,000 characters that you can choose from, does it necessarily make sense to keep going back to the same ones over and over again? Especially when you look at how Quantumania has not been doing very well. But with respect to Star Wars movies, he did agree that uh, the cadence was a little too aggressive with the number of movies that were coming out. Uh, Disney is still developing Star Wars films, but we're going to make sure when we make one, it's the right one. So we're being very careful there. As long as J.J. Abrams isn't a part of it, that right there, as far as I'm concerned, will make it better. Millennium Media has finally revealed plot and production details for the upcoming Hellboy reboot. Yes, it's being completely rebooted. No sign of Ron Perlman. Uh, so it says that Brian Taylor will be directing the new film. The title of the new movie is called Hellboy the Crooked Man. And for the first time in the franchise, Mike Mignola, who is the creator of the comics, has written the script alongside with his collaborator Chris Golden. So the comic itself, uh, called The Crooked Man, was debuted in July of 2008. And this new film will see Hellboy and a rookie BPRD agent stranded in 1950s rural Appalachia, or Appalachia, depending on where you live. Uh, there they discover a small community haunted by witches, led by a local devil with a troubling connection to Hellboy's past, The Crooked Man. So in the comic, The Crooked Man was an 18th century miser and war profiteer named Jeremiah Whitkins, who was hanged for his crimes, yet returned from hell as the region's resident devil. As of right now, there is no release date planned, but filming begins next month. Now, as to who's going to play Hellboy, as I said, it's not going to be Ron Perlman. Instead, Deadpool... Deadpool. <laughs> I mean, he was in Deadpool. Hellboy will be played by Jack Kessie, who played Black Tom in Deadpool 2. That's where my brain went crazy. An article came out on Vulture that makes me feel a little bit vindicated. And the title of the article, and it's a long one, is called Bad Projection is Ruining the Theater Experience. Now, I have been saying this for a long time, and I have always, since the death of 3D, well, since the major death of 3D, uh, have been complaining that bad projection is part of it. For 3D films in particular to work and not give people headaches, the projector need, projector projector needs to be set at a certain brightness because the 3D lens itself, the, the polarization lens, dims the picture immediately. That's simply part of how it works. So you need to compensate for that by bumping up the brightness of the bulb. Bulbs are not cheap. At least back when I used to do projector work, the bulbs that they used were xenon and they were vacuum sealed and they would slowly wear out over time. So if you pushed them harder, they would wear out that much faster, and then the theater would have to pay to replace them, and God forbid they do that. So I, I, would, I would pretty much, I would bet money that nine times out of ten, people who complained about headaches in movie theaters, it was probably due to improper brightness. 
So the article starts out, it's a long article. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll absolutely have a link in the show notes if you want more information about the behind the scenes behind all of this. Uh, said that uh, although a ticket to this matinee, which is for Ant-Man and the Wasp, uh, costs more than a month's worth of Netflix's priciest subscription plan, where the hell did he go? Uh, the image on screen is so dim, it's hard to make out much of the movie's action, and all of its glamorous stars have been turned dark gray. Next to me is Jack Feakston, a projector specialist at Dolby Laboratories, who immediately diagnoses the problem. This is a 2D showing of Ant-Man, but some neglectful employee has forgotten to remove the 3D filter from the projector. He said, it's a polarized lens that cuts the picture's brightness by a third. They just have to push it to the side when they switch to 2D, but theaters often forget to do it all the time. You can tell when it's happening because if you look at the port window glass, which is the actual glass that the projector image comes through back in the projection booth, instead of a single image, you'll see two with one stacked on top of the other, and he pointed to the booth behind him. Sure enough, two stacked beams. And then in another theater, trailers apparently are playing on a screen that is creased and sagging. You know, the screen is a big fabric screen with a very highly reflective material on it. That has to be pulled taut. And the picture apparently is trapezoidal, which is something known as keystoning. You know, and I'm sure you've all seen that if you try to place something, uh, any kind of projection unit, and it's not perfectly parallel to the wall or perpendicular. If it's not perfectly perpendicular to the wall, one, you know, the top or the bottom is going to be larger than the other, and it's going to form a trapezoid shape. But the thing is, with most projectors nowadays, that can be fixed by software as long as someone does it, and theaters aren't doing it. Now, a lot of the problems, according to this, can be traced back to 2009 when theaters swapped their film projectors for digital ones. I, I did projection work back in the film days. So most of those projectors, the digital ones, are made by Sony, uh, and they were meant to show the original Avatar. So one of the reasons why studios jumped on it is because they could distribute movies by downloading encrypted versions over the Internet instead of using heavy boxes of, of 35 millimeter film. I freaking loved it. When I worked at the theater, and I was actually the assistant manager, I wasn't the projectionist, but I did a lot of projectionist work. Thursday nights, I would be there, and we would get these movies on 35mm film in 20-minute reels in these big metal buckets. And so each bucket held three reels, so that was an hour of film. And I would spend my Thursday night, Friday morning, taking, you know, here's reel one, and splicing it together with, the, the end of reel one with the beginning of reel two. And then it would go onto these massive platters that held like four and a half hours of film. And that's what I would do uh, you know, all, all Thursday night, Friday morning and so forth. And I loved it. I had so much fun doing it because here I am assembling this movie and it, it was just fun. Maybe it's part of my, uh, my maker quality, you know, with all the props that I make and so forth. Hey, I'm making a movie, but I love doing it. And the best part was once the film was put together, run it through the projector and watch it if I wanted to. There were plenty of movies that, that my wife and I, then girlfriend, uh, and other employees, you know, I'd say, hey, come on in at this time and we'll watch the movie. You know, sometimes the, the theater manager would come in too and we'd be watching these movies at three in the morning on a Friday. You know, and it was a lot of fun, but I was also kind of being trained as a projector, a projectionist because we only had one guy that had to deal with the projectors on multiple theaters uh, in the local area. So I was kind of being trained to do projector work. So I was being taught all about 
when to tell when the bulb is starting to go, how to properly clean them, how to properly maintain them, you know, how, how to fix when a film splits while it's being shown, how, you know, get up there and splice it and run it through again and, and start it up and so forth. I mean, so really, projectionists were skilled engineers and troubleshooters. That's what they did. But now these new, fi- whoops, these new projectors from uh, Sony were now all digital, and the theater managers, all that they'd have to do is program the time for it to start, program the movie, and walk away. You know, all of the technical skills regarding making sure that the projector was set up properly and it was set at the proper brightness. Uh, one of the things that I had to do is if a movie was what's called flat, which is just your basic one point, you know, what you see in high definition right now, that width is what we would call flat. Then the really wide movies we called scope, and you needed to physically change the lens out on the front for a scope movie uh, as opposed to a flat movie. That was one of the things that we had to do. Well, with these new digital projectors, you didn't have to do that. Just program it, and it should (laughs) switch lenses. But what it meant that by doing all of this so that you didn't need projectionists, everything that projectionists took seriously, bulb brightness, the, the framing curtains, because, you know, the curtains that you see on the top and bottom and the sides, those get calibrated to what the projector is going to be throwing out. If that's not properly done, then you're going to see images shown onto the curtains or the screen itself is not going to be full, completely filled up. You know, projectionists took that stuff seriously. And now with these new digital projectors, what is, why do you need a projectionist? You know, the manager can go up and hit a couple of buttons and run some software and oh, everything is all good enough. But I mean, more often than not, it's the brightness of the bulb that is causing an issue for people. So according to Digital Cinema Initiatives, which is a joint venture between multiple studios, they recommend that commercial theaters project their films at a minimum of 14 foot Lamberts. Now, you're just saying, what the hell's a foot Lambert? A foot Lambert is a standard of brightness roughly to the equivalent of the amount of light that would be projected by 48 wax candles per square meter of screen space. I'm sure that this debuts, you know, that, that whole measurement goes way back to the original cinema. You know, if they're talking wax candles, then I'm sure this was a, a standard from when movies first started to become a thing. But anyway, the brightness is supposed to be 14 foot Lamberts. That's what they recommend. According to this one maintenance technician who asked for anonymity while criticizing the theaters that employ him, said that some places with those old Sony projectors are getting as few as six foot Lamberts. It's less than half the brightness than, the, than is recommended. And the bulbs themselves, according to this, is supposed to last between 1,000 and 5,000 hours based on their brightness level, but a single bulb can last or can cost $1,500. So because of that, lots of theaters push them past their lifespan. Now, I mean, because of this whole backlash, there are some good things to it. Uh, theaters like, well, Alamo Draft House, which, God, I wish I had one near me. Uh, there are other ones like the Roxy in New York, uh, the New Beverly in Los Angeles. I follow their Twitter, and I'm so jealous of the fact that I'm on the opposite coast. They've gained a popularity because they've gone back to the old way of doing things. They show their movies on 35mm films. They have uh, projectionists who take care of everything. And theaters like that are doing incredibly well. And to its credit, AMC has announced that they plan to install laser projectors 
where the lasers are the light source, so they're not going to be dependent on xenon bulbs. And because you're not, you know, passing a medium through a, a light bulb uh, to, to shoot it to the screen, the lasers are going to produce the, the image themselves. They're going to have better brightness, they're going to have more colors, they're going to have better contrast, but they're free of bulbs, and apparently, because they're, they're laser-based, they can run for 20,000 hours before the light systems need to be replaced. Doesn't necessarily mean anything, because what is the cost of that versus a xenon bulb? Who knows? But really, the big question comes down to, does this mean anything? With, with so many TVs out there, you know, somebody can get a new 65-inch 4K TV. And keep in mind, a lot of digital projectors actually show at 2K, not 4K. So it can be argued that the presentation of a movie is better at home, or potentially better at home, depending on what your equipment is. Does this, so does it mean anything that, you know, will, will replacing all of these things mean that there are going to be better experiences at the theater? Arguably, yes. Whether people take advantage of it enough to bring them back into theaters, that remains to be seen. So I'm curious as to what you think. I mean, would something like this bring you back into the theaters to, to see, you know, a better picture quality? You know, would it get you to go to see a 3D movie in the theater again? Because it looks like 3D movies in theaters are still, they're, they're not going anywhere. It's 3D at home that has gotten completely destroyed. And I'm not going to go on that tangent. Longtime listeners know my feelings about that. But I'm curious at what you think. Send me an email, podcast at widescreen.org. Ah, quick update on the whole Rust shooting, which is just, I don't know. <laughs> I feel a little bit vindicated. Vindicated? Vindicated. On the last podcast, I talked about this, and I said straight up that it was ridiculous for the DA to be accusing Alec Baldwin as the actor for pulling the trigger on that, uh, on that gun that killed Helena Hutchins, because the actor is... The actor is not the armorer. The actor is depending on the armorer to do their job. And it was nice that Anson Mount on uh, Twitter, who plays Christopher Pike in Star Trek Strange New Worlds, completely agreed with me on that one. He's like, no, this is dumb. You know, he said something to the equivalent of, we're, we're just dumb actors. It's not our responsibility to, to you know, inspect the weapons ourselves. So I, I felt slightly vindicated on that because that one simply didn't make sense. But Alec Baldwin is no longer facing a potential five years in prison for the shooting. <laughs> so the New Mexico First Judicial DA came up and said, In order to avoid further litigious distractions by Mr. Baldwin and his attorneys, the district attorney and the special prosecutor has re have removed the firearm enhancement to the involuntary manslaughter charges in the death of Helena Hutchins on the Rust film set. The prosecution's priority is securing justice, not securing billable hours for big city attorneys. <laughs> uh, the whole thing is a mess. I mean, it's, it's pretty freaking evident that the armorer is at fault. Maybe he is at fault as the producer, because as the producer, he also has certain responsibilities, and he might have failed there. Who knows what's going to happen, but whenever I hear anything major involving this whole issue, I will let you know. There have been some notable deaths since the last podcast. Kaim Topol, who most of us simply know as Topol, has died. Uh, the spirited Israeli actor and singer is probably best known as Tevye the Milkman in the Fiddler on the Roof, uh, well, both the movie and on stage. He's considered to be Israel's first international movie star, and he also played Italian astronomer Galileo Galilei. Galilei. <sighs> 
in the movie Galileo. Uh, a lot of us from the 80s also know him as Dr. Hans Zarkov from 1980s Flash Gordon, and James Bond fans will know him as Columbo from 1981's For Your Eyes Only, the uh, Greek smuggler who was an ally of James Bond. He was also a central character in two ABC miniseries, The Winds of War and War in Remembrance, but he is almost certainly best known for the estimated 3,500 times that he's played Tevye on stage and screen. In fact, back in 2013, he reminisced uh, about how he was hired despite lobbying by Zero Mostel, Rod Steiger, Danny Kaye, and Frank Sinatra to play the part of Tevye. And he said he was hired, quote, probably because I was cheaper, unquote. Haim Topol was 87. Actor Tom Sizemore has also died. He began his career in 1989, uh, most prominently playing a small part in Born on the Fourth of July, but he went on to appear in films like Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man, Natural Born Killers, Saving Private Ryan, Black Hawk Down. He also played roles on television in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Shooter, and probably most notably Twin Peaks The Return. So unfortunately, his career was loaded with controversy, struggled with addiction issues, um, convicted multiple times for domestic violence, accused of sexual abuse of a minor on natural-born killers, although there were no files charges uh, files charged at the time. And as recently as 2019, he was arrested for misdemeanor drug possession charges. Regrettably, he died after suffering from a brain aneurysm. Tom Sizemore was 61. And finally, Walter Mirisch has died. Now, you might not know who he is because he wasn't a star. He wasn't a director. But he, he was the longest-living Oscar winner. So, Mirish was the former president of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences. Science, sciences. I'm getting tired. Uh, does it show? I'm getting tired. Uh, he served as the president from 73 to 77. But what he's probably most known for is uh, the list of movies that he has produced. So, most of the movies that he produced at the very beginning of his career were Bomba the Jungle Boy, uh, and it's the first of its 11 sequels. The first of its 11 sequels. <laughs> so he continued to make mostly B-movies through the 1950s until he finally launched his own movie, The Mirish Company, which made a deal with United Artists and began to start a whole string of hits for United Artists, including... 1959's Some Like It Hot, The Magnificent Seven. In 1961, they produced the uh, movie version of West Side Story, which was a Best Picture winner. Other movies that Mirish and his company produced include 1967's In the Heat of the Night, which was actually very controversial back then. It starred Sidney Poitier uh, as a Philadelphia homicide detective sent to rural Mississippi. If you've seen the TV series, that's based on the movie. But uh, In the Heat of the Night included what then was a shocking scene of Tibbs being slapped by a white man and then slapping him back. And now keep in mind, this is a black guy hitting a white guy in the Deep South in 1967. But that's when he delivered the line, they call me Mr. Tibbs. So if you remember that line from The Lion King, that's what that was referencing. So other movies that the Mirish Company produced... Also include The Great Escape, The Pink Panther, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, The Thomas Crown Affair, Fiddler on the Roof, and Same Time Next Year. 
So again, even if you didn't know the name, you absolutely knew some of the movies that his production company produced. Walter Mirisch was 101. Another one for the rumor mill. Apparently, Quentin Tarantino is back for one last time. He's always said he only wanted to direct a certain certain number of movies. Uh, There was a lot of talk that it would be a Star Trek movie, and all respect to him, I'm actually glad he didn't touch Star Trek. I have no no problems with him not touching Star Trek at all. I'm, I'm fine with that. Apparently, this is according to sources, his last movie is called The Movie Critic, and it's prepping for, uh, for it to be starting production this fall. Sources describe the story as being set in the late 1970s Los Angeles with a female lead at its center. So that means that it's possible that the story focuses on Pauline Kael, who was one of the most influential movie critics of all time. Now, she died in 2001, uh, was not just a critic, but also an essayist and novelist, and was known for her fights with editors as well as filmmakers. Apparently, he is known to have a deep respect for Kale as well, which means, well, I mean, that, that makes the odds of this being a movie, at least based on her, that much more likely. So the project does not yet have a studio home. It could go out to studios or bios as early as this week. But again, that's the rumor mill. Take, take it with a grain of salt. But if something more official comes out, you'll hear it right here. If you were to go into the past, you have no idea what the consequences can be. Bruce, I could fix things. You could also destroy everything. This can't be happening. I completely broke the universe. Sorry. We've been waiting for you. I created a world with no metahumans. And now there's no one to defend us. Want some help? You're... You are... Yeah. I'm Batman. And that is part of the trailer for The Flash. And this is going to be the big movie starring Ezra Miller that is supposed to effectively reboot the DC Universe. And if that original Batman music wasn't a clue for you, that was Michael Keaton in the role. So, of course, dealing with multiverses and, and multiple universes and all that other kind of stuff, it's going to be a very complex movie. I'm sure, hopefully, we don't lose too much track of what's going on during the movie. But if you want to see the trailer, you know where to go. The movie comes out on June 16th in North America, but June 14th everywhere else because reasons. Now, this one I'm going to add to the rumor category uh, because reasons that will become clear. Apparently, Paul King, the director of the Paddington movies, has come on board Sony Pictures to produce, I'm sorry, to direct an untitled Fred Astaire drama that has Tom Holland attached to star as Fred Astaire. Now, Tom Holland as Fred Astaire absolutely makes sense, seeing as how he starred in Billy Elliot the musical over in London's West End when he was 12. The guy's basically been dancing all of his life. And of course, I mean, if you're on the internet, you've seen his clip of in lip sync battle singing or dancing to Rihanna's umbrella. And if you haven't seen that, really go look it up. It's amazing. So all that's known about the story right now is that the project centers around his relationship with his sister Adele, 
apparently the two of them were inseparable for more than 20 years, starting with a, a vaudeville act in the Midwest in the early part of the 20th century, then eventually going to Broadway, then eventually going to London's West End in the 1920s. And apparently when, her, when his sister married, that's when they separated, which was a big blow to him, but that's what also put him into the path of Hollywood dance musicals, where he really started to surge in popularity. Um, the reason why I say this is a rumor is apparently Sony had no comment about this. So it's not saying, the article doesn't say anything about sources or saying, you know, or, or anything like that. But once they say Sony had no comment, well, okay, then that means they heard it as rumor, went to Sony, and they said, mm, I'm not saying anything. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens with that one. My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3 now has a release date. It's going to be released globally on September 8th. Unsurprisingly, Part 3 was written and directed by franchise's director, Nia Vardalos. I know that a lot of people, and myself included, talk about how everything everywhere all at once, you know, this little, you know, this, this is, it is an indie film, really, because of its budget and so forth, and it be, has become a huge success, at least critically, and, and when it comes to awards. Financially, it's okay. I mean, it's, it was made for $25 million. So far, it's only grossed a little over $100 million. But you want to talk about an indie film that hit it big, financially and critically? This is probably one of the greatest examples. This movie was, the original My Big Fat Greek Wedding was made for only $5 million and earned $368 million worldwide. So the original movie made almost 74 times as much as its budget. The second one didn't do nearly as well, even though it was still profitable. It was made for $18 million and brought in only $90 million, only, listen to me, only $90 million worldwide. That's still four times as much as its budget. So we'll have to see how number three fares. Anyway, uh, as I said, that's going to be released theatrically around the world on September 8th. Another franchise that's been really popular is How to Train Your Dragon. And as much as the last movie was kind of billed as going to be the last one, well, of course, you know, something this popular can't stay buried for long. How to Train Your Dragon is again in the works, this time as a live-action movie. So obviously, it's going to be a combination of live-action and CGI. And we have nothing about story or plot. All they're saying is that Dean DeBloy, who is the uh, Oscar-nominated and Golden Globe-winning uh, filmmaker, who basically, it's his franchise, he is returning once again to write, direct, and produce this latest entry. The only thing we have regarding a date is that it's scheduled to be released on March 14th, 2025. But along with that, a number of other movies have had their dates changed. Uh, the Marvels, which is going to be Brie Larson's next Marvel movie, is now set to open on November 10th. It's being pushed back from its July 28th date, so that's, that's several months. And instead, Haunted Mansion, which was supposed to be released on August 11th, that's going to be jumping into the Marvel's July 28th spot. Also adjusting its release date, although not significantly, is the Super Mario Brothers movie that was supposed to be launched on April 7th. It's now going to launch on April 5th. So probably by the time of the next podcast, this movie will be out, and hopefully I will have seen it and we will be able to talk about it then. Don't worry, don't worry, I know. People don't like spoilers. Don't spoil it for me. I won't spoil anything. It'll simply be my impression of whether I liked it or not, whether the kids liked it or not, that sort of thing. And finally, the long-awaited Wicked movie, based on uh, one of uh, my favorite musicals, 
I saw Wicked Off-Broadway, and it was amazing. I absolutely loved it. The uh, part one of the big screen adaptation, because remember, even though it's only like a two, two and a half hour stage musical, they've decided to split this into two movies so they could expand on the characters. It's now going to be opening in theaters on November 27th, 2024, instead of on Christmas Day. Insiders say that the move to Thanksgiving gives the movie more time to build an audience over the year-end holidays and is also beneficial from a consumer product standpoint. Well, okay, that makes sense, because the month before Christmas, if it becomes a hit, then they can sell more stuff regarding it for Christmas. So I understand that. And if you're also a Wicked fan and you have any concerns about you know them, them expanding it, because we, we've seen what happens when movies get expanded that really didn't need to be expanded. Hello, Hobbit. And even I won't watch the Hobbit trilogy again. Sorry. <laughs> it's just, it's too padded. I won't, I can't do it. But Wicked is adapted for the screen by the person who wrote the stage production, Winnie Holtzman, and by composer and lyricist Stephen Schwartz, who wrote the music for the play. So, you know, the, the two critical people who were involved with the stage production are the ones who are adapting it for the screen. So that, that gives me, that gives me a little bit of hope. Not unexpectedly, a fourth Spider-Man movie with Tom Holland is in the works and the story is being written now that comes directly from Marvel boss Kevin Feige. He says that all I will say is that we have the story, we have big ideas for that, and our writers are just putting pen to paper now. Honestly, this wasn't really that much of a surprise. Tom Holland is so well-loved as Spider-Man. He does such a good job with it. The only thing that has not yet been confirmed yet is that he he's bring, being brought back for Three more movies, that so far has not yet been confirmed. Chances are it's going to happen anyway. I mean, he's too good as Spider-Man. And now that Sony is working with Marvel, the Spider-Man franchise is it's firing on all cylinders. So that's, that's definitely good news to hear. Another one for the rumor category, apparently Wednesday star Jenny Ortega is circling a role in Beetlejuice 2. So again, all of this is unconfirmed because Warner Brothers did not comment. And representatives for Ortega also did not comment. But according to sources, Tim Burton is expected to direct. Michael Keaton is expected to return. Nothing yet about whether Winona Ryder will be returning. But apparently Ortega is going to play the daughter of Lydia, which is the character that Winona Ryder played. Production is eyeing a late May or early June shoot in London. Budget has not been set. And this is why so far everything involving this project is still in the rumor mill. Thanks to my bad organizational skills, I forgot there is still one other obituary since the last podcast. Big screen star of the 60s and 70s, Raquel Welch, has died. Her career spans over 50 years, more than 30 films, a whole bunch of TV appearances. Her breakout role came in 1966 with the sci-fi movie Fantastic Voyage, which followed a group of people who are miniaturized along with a submarine and injected into the bloodstream of a nearly assassinated scientist in an effort to save his life, but they only have an hour before they can return to real size. So the movie won Oscars for its visual effects and its art direction and became a cult classic. You've probably also seen the image of her, uh, you know, scantily clad as a cave woman from the 1966 British film One Million Years B.C. She then starred opposite Dudley Moore, and Peter Cook on Bedazzled, and opposite James Stewart, Dean Martin, and George Kennedy in the 1968 Western Bandolero, and a number of other movies, including 1973's The Three Musketeers, which earned her a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress in a Comedy or Musical. 
But eventually, her film career kind of weakened a little bit in late 1970s, so she started to do more TV work. One of her high-profile TV roles was in Right to Die, in which she top-lined as a successful woman whose life has changed forever after her ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease, diagnosis. That role earned her a Golden Globe nomination. So she went on to make other appearances, such as in Naked Gun, 33 and a Third, Legally Blonde, both of which obviously were movies, and then back on TV with Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Lois and Clark, episodes of Spin City. Very prolific career. Uh, but despite her Golden Globes win and nomination, she never earned an Oscar or an Emmy nomination. But she did win an Alma Award in 2001, a Western Heritage Award, and a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1996. Raquel Welch was 82. If you're looking for more Lord of the Rings movies, and I'm talking theatrically, not restricted to Amazon, then I have good news for you. Warner Brothers and New Line are going back to Middle-Earth. They've made a deal with the current rights holders to Lord of the Rings uh, to make more Lord of the Rings movies. Now, I mean, it's it's complicated because it's different from what Amazon... Amazon has the, the TV rights to Lord of the Rings, but apparently they don't have rights to the characters, or, or at least the characters that we know of. So things like Gandalf, Bilbo, Aragorn, they're not supposed to show up in any of the Amazon uh, TV episodes. Well, it feels weird calling them TV episodes, but you know what I mean. But the difference is that Warner does have the rights to those characters. Now, it still doesn't necessarily mean anything because The Hobbit's been done, The Lord of the Rings has been done. Hope to God the Silmarillion will never be done. <laughs> if you've read The Hobbit, great. It's a great book. The Lord of the Rings was a fantastic series of <clears throat> six books, not three. I mean, I've read Lord of the Rings six times, front to back, all the way. The Silmarillion, I will never read again in my life. It's <laughs> You want to talk about convoluted, that's the Silmarillion. So the big question is, what are they going to do? Well, who knows? J.R.R. Tolkien did come up with a massive, sprawling history uh, regarding Middle-earth. They really have anything that they can pick and choose. And th consider also that The Hobbit actually takes place 60 years before The Lord of the Rings. So they have a bunch of things simply between those two stories that they can look at for material. You know, maybe even an opportunity to explore certain characters uh, that, or, or certain cultures that were part of Lord of the Rings but were left out of the movie. You know, maybe a Tom Bombadil movie. You never know. So we'll have to see what happens with that. And finally, I love, love, love this story. Now, I can't play the video because it won't make a whole lot of sense. You have to see it. But long-time listeners to this show know that I'm a huge fan of The Last Blockbuster. Yes, there actually is one last blockbuster that is still running in the world. It's located in Bend, Oregon. And they decided to release a, a, an advertisement uh, that went viral. It wasn't going to be on the Super Bowl because that would have been a $7 million price tag. So instead, they posted it online. But it could arguably have gotten even a better response than if it was on the Super Bowl. So this ad is a post-apocalyptic commercial. And I don't want to ruin the commercial. It's it's a short one. It's only like 40 seconds. But it's it's great. I loved it. But obviously, I mean, they're, they're, a, they're a blockbuster. You can still rent movies there. And they also did stuff uh, such as you can rent the store overnight to turn it into like a, a family and friend overnight sleep 
area and you could rent pretty much, you know, you can watch anything that's in the store. They've been doing some really creative stuff and obviously they're the last blockbuster. So that right there gives them a bit of notoriety. They even had a documentary about them a, f a couple of years ago. Upon launching this viral ad, their sales on their at their store went up 200%. So obviously, I mean, it's something for the locals there, but now it has its own recognition as a tourist destination. I mean, it's the last blockbuster in the world. But when it was at its peak in 2004, it had over 9,000 stores across, uh, across the U.S. and, well, actually around the world. So now the one in Bend, Oregon is the last surviving one. And you just got to see the ad for itself. It's so silly. It's so cute. And, you know, maybe even consider going to their website, which is bendblockbuster.com, and getting something just to show your support. I really need to get a t-shirt, you know, just because. And that's it for this episode. So, uh, I, I say it on my streams a lot, and I mean it here, too, that I have such a small audience here, and I'm okay with that. So, for those of you who are regular listeners, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Even though I make absolutely no revenue from this whatsoever, I do it for fun. And the fact that there are still people out there who listen to this means a lot. So PAX East is next week. Uh, obviously, any interviews that I get from there will not be done here. They'll be done over at TDP Nominal. And we will do it this year. I promise. I promise. Mark and I are definitely going to work on that. And if any of you are going to be coming over to PAX East and you happen to see me walking around with a big Warframe prop, come over and say hello. I'm not a celebrity. I'm just a dude from Pennsylvania, you know? Anyway, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. And I'll see you on the flip side. I can pray and trick with a double tongue, but the only fool here is me. I choose the way to go, but the road won't set me free. Cause I wish you'd see me, baby. Save me, I'm going crazy. Trying to keep us real. Keep us alive. This day we'll die tonight, and there ain't no exception. We shouldn't wait for nothing to wait for Love me in this fable, babe, my heart is in your hand Our time is waiting right outside your door And maybe tomorrow A better day. Oh, as always, this podcast is copyright 2023. I mean, it's not always copyright 2023, times change, but you know what I'm saying, and is released under the Creative Commons license. Some rights are reserved. The widescreen podcast is a proud member of the Blueberry Network. That's blueberrynoease.com. The music is by Poets of the Fall and is used with permission. Please visit their website at poetsofthefall.com. This has been a widescreen.org production. Adapt the truth.